Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. Say, can you see by the dawn's early light? Oh, what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. What to who's brought stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight? We're so gallantly streaming And the rocket's red glare The bombs bursting in air Gave proof through the night That a flag was still there Hell yeah, oh say Does that star spangle banner yet wave For the land of the Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here, at our sea-washed sunset gates, shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That's The New Colossus, a poem written by Emma Lazarus to raise money for a pedestal for the Statue of Liberty. Lazarus's words were later inscribed on a bronze plaque, which was placed at the base of the statue, where it currently resides. I'm always harping on listeners and everybody to go read important books and poetry counts among them. Whether it's the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, or the work of Charles Bukowski, or Langston Hughes, or Phyllis Wheatley, there's poetry out there to match all tastes. Lazarus's The New Colossus is an important one, as it is not only a great work of art created right here in the United States, with that last part about the poor huddled masses being repeated so often that most people are no doubt familiar with it. But if you only know that part, then you are missing the big picture. 
This is important for tap dancers to understand because, as we've mentioned, often on the program, tap dance comes from the histories of oppressed people, many of them immigrants. Without immigrants and people from other countries, we would not have the tap dance that we do today. So I think that a thorough examination of this poem is valuable in understanding why the U.S. was the perfect place for tap dance to evolve and that the new Colossus perfectly illustrates the, at times ostensible, ideology of the United States as a glowing beacon of hope for oppressed people around the world that offers worldwide welcome. Before we dig into the poem, let's learn a little bit about Emma Lazarus. Here is a short biography from poetryfoundation.org, which reads... Emma Lazarus was born in New York City to a wealthy family and educated by private tutors. She began writing and translating poetry as a teenager and was publishing translations of German poems by the 1860s. Her father privately printed her first work in 1866 and the next year, her first collection, Poems and Translations, in 1867. The book gained the attention of Ralph Waldo Emerson, among others. And over the next decade, Lazarus published a second volume of poetry, Admetus and Other Poems, in 1871. The novel Elide, an episode in Goethe's life, in 1874, and a play in verse, The Spagnoletto, in 1876. Reading George Eliot's novel Daniel Deronda, with its exploration of Jewish identity, stirred Lazarus to consider her own heritage. In the 1880s, she took up the cause, through both poetry and prose, against the persecution of Jews in Russia, publishing a polemical pamphlet, The Century, in 1882, and Songs of a Semite, The Dance to Death, and other poems, in 1882, one of the first literary works to explore the struggles of Jewish Americans. Lazarus was one of the first successful and highly visible Jewish-American authors. She advocated for Jewish refugees and argued for the creation of a Jewish homeland before the concept of Zionism was in wide circulation. Lazarus was commissioned to write a poem to help raise funds for the pedestal for the Statue of Liberty in 1883, and lines from that sonnet, The New Colossus, were engraved on the pedestal of the statue in 1903. After her death, the scope of Lazarus's life and career was obscured by the fame of the New Colossus. There have been recent attempts to revitalize scholarship and interest in her work, including a volume of selected poems from the Library of America and a biography, Emma Lazarus, from 2006, written by Esther Shore. Now let's break down the poem. The first lines show that Lazarus is critical of Europe, the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land, refers to the Colossus of Rhodes, a statue of the sun god Helios that was erected in the ancient Greek city of Rhodes in 282 BCE by sculptor Charles of Lindus, or Lindo, or Lindos, Lindos, Somewhere, something like that, and is considered one of the seven wonders of the world and stood approximately 105 feet high or 
32 meters. The statue was toppled years later by an earthquake, and there it lay, until invading forces took it apart and sold it for scrap. Early descriptions, like Lazarus's, describe the Colossus of Rhodes as nude or semi-nude, with feet straddling two cliffs, wearing a crown and left hand holding a clock. The face was turned to the sky with his right hand covering his eyes as if shielding them from the sun rays while guarding the harbor. The statue was created to commemorate a victory the Rhodians had over the conqueror Demetrius of Macedon. Ooh, like Alexander the Great was from Mace. Ooh, good conquerors, the Macedonians. It turns out that the description of the Colossus of Rhodes straddling two cliffs is inaccurate, as the technology to accomplish that did not yet exist, so Lazarus is incorrect in her description, but that's nitpicking. Lazarus's point is that the Colossus of Rhodes is a symbol of war, whereas the Statue of Liberty is a symbol of freedom and peace, a metaphor what supposedly sets the U.S. apart from Europe. Here in the U.S., our giant statue at the sea-washed sunset gates of the New York Harbor isn't even a dude, but a woman, a powerful woman. And she has a name, Mother of Exiles. Let that sink in. The name of the Statue of Liberty, according to the poem, is the Mother of Exiles. A motherly figure who promises worldwide welcome with her glowing torch to light the way. And she speaks! Bet you didn't know that you could quote an actual statue, did you? What she says, according to Lazarus, further drives home what separates the U.S. from Europe. She says, keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp. Because the U.S. is a nation of immigrants, not run by monarchical dynasties with power passed down to create gigantic disparities between lower-class people and aristocrats. Oh my goodness, what, what happened? How many presidents were the children of or related to other presidents again? Oh right, 8 out of 46. And, and let's not get into mayors, governors, and congress people. Then the famous lines, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free of which most of us are no doubt familiar. When you look at immigration on the U.S. southern border, hundreds of people wading across rivers, climbing walls, or just walking up to border security, I mean, yeah, that's what poor, huddled masses look like. And I dare you to make the trek from Venezuela to Texas sans airplane and not be even a little worn out. Everyone likes that part, but for some... It's not enough to convince them to make immigration easier for migrants and refugees, citing the threat of incognito drug dealers and sex traffickers being nestled among them. And that's true. There will naturally be some amount of people up to no good. But is that a good enough reason to be weary of all immigrants who don't have the means and resources to sit and wait for bureaucracy, who are fleeing corrupt and dangerous governments and are unable to go through the slog of official channels. The next lines in the poem say, no, that's not a good enough reason. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, 
says the Statue of Liberty through Lazarus. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not one to describe migrants and refugees as wretched refuse, but to me, it seems reasonable to interpret that line as describing those who enter the country with perhaps harmful, if not malicious, intent. Based on this poem and the ideals it sets, I say that, yeah, we have to let those people into. Now, that might rub a lot of people the wrong way, but the idea is that the U.S. is a transformative place where you can become someone new. The land of opportunity, we calls it. The U.S., with our vast wealth and resources, can be a place of rehabilitation. If life is better here than other places, you wouldn't need to sell drugs and commit crimes, right? In short, show people a better life, and they'll be cool. There is a wealth of studies on this, like, you guys, so many. And the majority concur with the assessment that poverty increases crime. In a special report by the U.S. Justice Department, written by Erica Harrell, Ph.D., and Lynn Langton, Ph.D., BJS statisticians Marcus Berzovsky and Hope Smiley McDonald, Ph.D. from the Research Triangle Institute International, in the report titled Household Poverty and Non-Fatal Violent Victimization from the years 2008 to 2012, the report says that persons in poor households at or below the federal poverty level, or FPL, which is about 39.8 per 1,000 people, had more than double the rate of violent victimization as persons in high-income households, which is about 16.9 out of 1,000 people. Also, persons in poor households had a higher rate of violence involving firearms, 3.5 per 1,000, compared to persons above the FPL, 0.8 to 2.5 per 1,000, and that the overall pattern of poor persons having the highest rate of violent victimization was consistent for both white and black people. Of course, there are some people, when speaking about migrants who are Hispanic in origin, they say things like, they're, they're bringing drugs, okay, they're, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Sorry. Uh, yeah, when people say that, that, you know, some are good people. But the study says that poor Hispanics, 25.3 per 1,000 people, had lower rates of violence compared to poor whites, 46.4 per 1,000. And poor black people, 43.4 per 1,000. In other words, the data does not correspond with the hateful rhetoric that Hispanic immigrants are prone to crime, but are less prone to crime. So that turns out to be a load of... That's right, BS Chorus. But that's just one study, you might be thinking. Well, there are others. The journal Crime and Social Justice, issue 25, dated 1986, correlates 1970 U.S. Census data on variables associated with poverty and data from the Uniform Crime Reports for 1970 to 1979, and the results are the same, that, quote, only the percent of families below the poverty level positively correlated with both violent crime and property crime rates, and that there are no other 
Social variables theoretically linked to crime that can possibly explain the correlation consistency over time, end quote. The report further says that, quote, the data indicate that socioeconomic policies to increase employment, reduce poverty, and strengthen the family should reduce the crime rate, end quote. And there are so many other reports that concede these same points. The U.S. Census Bureau reported that the poverty rate in 2019 was 10.5%, jumped up to 11.4% in 2020 during the COVID pandemic, where a lot of people were out of work. A study from the Brookings Institute titled Work and Opportunity Before and After Incarceration, published on March 14th, 2018, found that, quote, three years prior to incarceration, only 49% of prime age men are employed and... When employed, their median earnings were only 6250 bucks. end quote, end quote. An analysis comparing crime, income levels, and zip codes in Chicago by Jenna Ghazali of ArcGIS, ArcGIS, Arc, probably ArcGIS, ArcGIS.com, published on May 19th, 2021, found that, quote, by zip code, we see that areas below the poverty line have significant levels of crime, end quote. And there are a number of striking graphs that overlay these, these data on top of one another, if you're more of a visual person. And there are many more reports and studies that all reach these same conclusions. I mean, just, just an ocean of, of data. But there are some criticisms, too. Like an article on cityjournal.org by Barry Latzer from May 25th, 2022. Hey, that's National Tap Dance Day. Titled, Poverty and Violent Crime Don't Go Hand in Hand. Latzer cites cases where poverty doesn't mean an increase in crime, as in impoverished Asian communities in New York City, which do have low violent crime statistics. Latzer also recounts how the overall crime rate didn't go up during the Great Depression in the 1930s, and that property crime went down during the economic recession in 2008 due to the housing crisis. These are good points, that poverty isn't the only factor when it comes to crime, and that, you know, things like like poor education, a weak and unsupportive family structure, chronic drug use, other factors affect crime too, although one could argue that these are also symptoms of poverty. Latzer also attributes cultural elements to crime, like how black people, many who migrated north, I mean, in the past, not people now, you know, um, but black people in the past who migrated north from the south came from areas where crime among the white population was more rampant. So these black people brought that southern mentality with them and are still influenced by this today. This is, to me, a rather dubious claim. But then Latzer ends the article by writing, quote, as we saw with the Irish and Italian immigration to the United States and will someday see with America's black and Latino populations, movement up the social ladder to the middle class is associated with sharp declines in violent crime. The reasons for this are easily appreciated. The middle class person has everything to lose and little to gain from interpersonal violence, personal injury, loss of status, and criminal justice sanctions. Plus, the civil legal system provides effective alternatives for dispute resolution 
that middle-class individuals can afford, end quote. I, it it kind of sounds like Latzer is contradicting himself, doesn't it? I mean, he says, like, poverty doesn't necessarily cause crime, but lack of poverty definitely makes crime go down. Listen, if you don't believe me, go read it for yourself. No, poverty isn't responsible for all crime, and there are outliers, but the overwhelming data shows that in the bigger picture, yes, poverty elicits more crime. Back to my original point, that if we were bringing in new immigrants, making it easier for them to become citizens, paying more for the jobs that most U.S. Americans don't want to do, provide temporary and above-adequate housing, and set them up with some decent education, the impetus for, you know, drug, violence, and property crime should diminish. In short, yes, let in those who might be considered the wretched refuse of society and show them a better life. And perhaps the trend toward crime will diminish, if not evaporate. The last lines of the new Colossus says it all. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. Which is really what most of these people are. People who fled their countries due to poverty, violence, lack of economic opportunities for sustainable livelihoods, and food insecurity. An article on worldvision.org states that, quote, Most Central American migrants are coming from three of the region's seven countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, referred to as the Northern Triangle. It's called the Northern Triangle because the countries are clustered in a triangle at the northern tip of Central America. All three of the Northern Triangle countries rank among the poorest in the Western Hemisphere and are plagued by chronic violence. You hear people on the radio and and internet and TV complain about the horrible socialist governments in South America where corruption is a major problem, but then act surprised when people are leaving those places. No, they're, they're poor people, some of whom attempt to escape poverty through crime, sure. Even if Latzer is correct, I don't think he is, but let's say that he is, that it is their culture that makes them prone to crime, well, perhaps exposing people to a, a culture that treats them like human beings with dignity uh, and food would end the cycle of violence. The poem ends with the line, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And that's what immigration should be, not a barbed wire wall and cages that dehumanize people. I find it hard that people can, on one hand, be proud of this land of immigrants, but, on the other hand, demonize immigrants. No, we like legal immigrants. They're cool. It's the illegal ones that are a problem. People say to me in long comment threads on social media, and my response is always the same. I say, so let's make it easier for them to become legal citizens, taxpayers, with access to nice homes and a decent education. And that's when I cease to get a reply, because in my opinion, it's not really about legal or illegal, but not wanting to be around people that don't look like you or have the same culture as you preferring to live in homogenous habituses as 
evidenced by the flight from urban areas by white people after school desegregation in the 1950s to the 1990s. Yes, it, it went that long. And it's still not really still not really integrated. Okay. The argument that gets me is how can you call yourself a patriot and disagree with the Statue of Liberty? Poor huddled masses are great when they're Irish from 200 years ago, but not for Guatemalans today? I mean, it's a ridiculous contradiction. Like the difference between the Statue of Liberty and the Colossus at Rhodes, maybe we should have people sing the new Colossus before starting sports games. A poem of peace, which was set to music by Irving Berlin in the 1949 musical Lady Liberty, instead of the romanticization of war that is the Star-Spangled Banner. Even after all that, I am still optimistic because, I mean, you know, what other option is there unless you just want to lay in a dark room all day with your head under a blanket? The United States of America is a great country founded on enlightenment ideals of liberty and the protection of individual and group rights, which overcame slavery. I mean... You know, that is if you don't read the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. With some of the greatest innovations in health and education in the history of the world. We're better now than ever before. I believe that's true. But better does not equal ideal. And we can do better. In the USA, our Constitution is flexible and malleable. Our ideals are sound, at least on paper and on bronze plaques. As an artist, I believe that the emotions inspired by art have the power to alter society towards the better. Towards the worst, too, I guess, but mostly towards the better. And when I say read the books, that goes for poetry, too. In particular, the New Colossus. And if you're not down with Lady Liberty, then you have no right to call yourself a patriot. And if you're not down with immigrants and oppressed people coming here then you have no business calling yourself a tap dancer because there would be no tap dance without them. But that's just a gasp from a dying art form. Happy belated birthday, United States of America. Let's work together to achem, make America greater again. Sorry, I, I had to do it, but hey, at least I didn't do the stupid voice again. Thank you to the Gasps Patreon supporters, Junior Lanyon and Lori Williams. And heck, shout out to former sponsors, Pamela Hetherington and Liz Rancourt-Smith. I never forgot about you guys. Even though not every supporter is from the U.S., you're all better patriots than most people who call themselves that. So thank you for your support, and I love you guys. Do people call themselves patriots in England? I don't know. For everyone else... Check out Gasps from a Dying Art Form on Facebook and say, hello, and check out the Either And podcast hosted by Brill Barrett, the other podcast on the Mad Rhythms Podcast Network. Speaking of other podcasts, it's time for the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. Yee-hoo! Oh, oh, shoot, shoot. I put a hole in the ceiling. Brill's not going to be happy about that.
on episode number 63 of the Tap Love Tour podcast titled, It's Not All About Me. Wait, it's not all about me? Host and tap dance podfather, Travis Knights goes into full-on tap dance philosophy mode and asks, what is folk dance and how do we apply it to tap dance? This one gets super deep and it's beautiful, with Knights going into detail on the difference between folk dance and ritual dance, its roots in African American culture, how it propagated from there, and how we can approach tap dance in a more folkloric way. Like looking at tap as a communal experience connected to something larger. E.g. being a part of a band opposed to being the featured performer. The show ends with a clip of Max Roach talking about famous drummers who started off as tap dancers and an interview with Max Pollock about the jams at La Cave in the 1990s. Don't float the mainstream and instead listen to this episode of the Tap Love Tour podcast. Check it out! On episode number 74 of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast, host Hilary Marie gives thanks to her constituency, naming several students and faculty at her dance studio, as well as the members of her online learning platform ITAP Online, as recipients of love. You listen to this episode and you start to think, who am I thankful for? Who are you thankful for? Give this short episode of the Lost in the Shuffles podcast a listen to warm up your heart and then get to thanking someone. Check it out. On episode number 22 of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast, host Rick Oslin talks about tap shoe repair and gives you a couple options on how to fix those pesky stripped screw holes. Very informative and useful information. And that's mostly it before Oslin goes into a calendar update of, like, every tap event and class going on in Minneapolis. And I, I, started, I started to skip through, I admit it. But then I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of names, groups, organizations, and venues that I've never heard of. And decided that this is important, too, because it gives you a detailed account of the Minneapolis tap dance landscape at that time like a moment in history frozen in amber. You might not be able to hear about these people anywhere else. So give this episode of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast a listen and get to know the scene in Minneapolis and maybe better than some of the people that actually live there. Check it out. On episode 20, the season two closer of the Real Talk Tap Talks Vlog cast on YouTube and presented by Shuffle Live Productions. Host Nico Rubio interviews Ivory Wheeler, the last generation of the Four Step Brothers. Trained by original Four Step Brothers member Maceo Anderson, Wheeler talks about his training and Anderson. Uh, Maceo Anderson didn't rest, mess around, guys. Whacking people with canes. Docking their paychecks, hundreds of dollars, if they didn't perform to his specifications. And there is some real talk, too. I mean, it is the real talk tap talks, after all. When Wheeler discusses his role in the movie, The Cotton Club, or rather his unroll, with one of his big parts being cut, and the reason, 
according to Wheeler, is that the choreographer, the famous and highly respected Henry Letang, was being racist towards Wheeler and his fellow performers because they were dark-skinned and Letang was light-skinned. This serves as a good lesson that racism affects everybody, that we all can be oppressed and oppressor. Although, you know, paper imitators like me have it pretty easy, I gotta admit. And that it can be nuanced. Not everything is black and white. And this episode of the TR Triple T podcast is a good reminder. So check it out on the October 16th, 2022 episode of the Stop Time podcast. Host Lisa Hopkins interviews the Arnold sisters, Chloe and Maud of Chloe and Maud Productions, the LA Tap Fest, the James Corden Show, the Syncopated Ladies, and, and like a million other fantastic projects. The two talk about getting solid upbringings from their mom and dad, about what not to tell kids as a teacher, although, you know, it, it really lit a fire under Chloe, it seems, so in this case, it worked out. And uh, they discuss a little bit of philosophy, namely, what does it mean to be free? I'm not telling you the answer. So go listen to this episode of the Stop Time Podcast and hear for yourself. Check it out. Okay, that's it for this episode of Gasps. I'll see y'all later. Take it easy. I think they're gone. Okay, hello and welcome to the bonus section where we lose the squares while we're sitting in chairs or on the stairs or at uh, state fairs. Uh, I mean, I don't know where you guys listen to this stuff. I've been trying to read more poetry because honestly, it really affects me in ways that, that straight up nonfiction and fiction text do not. I'm trying to memorize a few, and, and here are some of the ones that really stick out to me. The first poem I ever memorized is from Kurt Vonnegut, who didn't, to my knowledge, write much poetry, but says that he is proud of this one, from his book, Cat's Cradle. Vonnegut writes, We do, doodly do, doodly do, doodly do, what we must, muddily must, muddily must, muddily must. Muddily do, muddily do, muddily do, muddily do, until we bust, bodily bust, bodily bust, bodily bust. I mean, it's classic Vonnegut, at the same time comical and depressing. It's Vonnegut who convinced me to take up a career in tap dance, in part due to his 
famous quote from a speech where he tells people that studying the arts is not a waste of time, but an affirmation of humanity. For more Vonnegut trivia and his links to tap dance, check out Gasp's episode number eight, titled Interview with Jim Siegelman, author of The Book of Tap from 1977. Another poem I really like is from Langston Hughes, titled Motto, which you have to set the a blues meter to really appreciate. Let's get the blues music going. A one, two, a one, two, three, and I play it cool and dig all jive. That's the reason I stay alive. My motto, as I live and learn, is dig and be dug in return. We gotta finish out the blues meter. Usually there's music here. Now, this one I really struggle with because I both agree with everything he says, yet I fail to implement this philosophy into my everyday life. I mean, how do you dig someone's jive, especially when some of that jive, like like crapping all over immigrants, is totally whack? The only thing I can think to do is to read more Langston Hughes, so, so I'll keep you updated on that. And in the meantime, check him out if you haven't already. I mean, really... Read some Langston Hughes. This is not a hard request. Another couple poems I really dig are from the famous Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, written, we think, by Khayyam, an astronomer and poet from the 12th century. There are two verses written back-to-back -back that I will read to you now. From chapter 11. Here with a loaf of bread beneath the bough, a flask of wine, a book of verse... And thou, beside me, singing in the wilderness. And wilderness is paradise now. I, I just find it so beautiful. Imagining sitting beneath a tree in a forest with my wife and a nice picnic lunch, singing songs together, transforming the chaos of nature into a paradise. Absolutely fantastic. The next chapter, chapter 12, is a bit spicier. How sweet is mortal sovereignty, think some. Others, how blessed the paradise to come. Ah, take the cash and wave the rest. Oh, the brave music of a distant drum. This is a clear reference to atheists and materialists versus religious folk. People who don't believe in an afterlife versus those who do. This mirrors the premise of the philosophical question known as Pascal's Wager, raised by philosopher Blaise Pascal. Pascal wages that, since we don't materially know if God and heaven exist, we should still act like they do, because if they do, then you will be richly rewarded for eternity. But if they don't, well, it didn't cost you too much to do things like, you know, not cheating, stealing, killing, or being jealous of your neighbor's wife and goat. The atheists fire back with the reasoning that, no, if God and heaven don't exist, then you would have wasted vast amounts of time of your life doing things like going to church and praying and, perhaps for some, discriminating against other people who don't share your religious beliefs. All that based on something that isn't real. I mean, a lot of people have died. I mean, the Crusades. The Crusades. And all that explanation is contained 
in Kayam's four-line poem. Last, I won't read you another poem, but I'm reminding my fellow millennials that you, too, may be familiar with the statue, the Colossus of Rhodes. On the 30th episode of the DuckTales cartoon, Scrooge McDuck, Huey, Dewey, and Louie search for the lost city of Ithaquack and the statue, the Colossus of Duckopolis, behind which is said to be a vast amount of treasure. A whirlwind takes them back in time, and they see the statue with a duck face, holding a shield in its left hand and with two webbed feet straddling two cliffs, which we learned earlier is not actually how it looked, straddling the cliffs. This is proof to me that the cartoons we grew up with were second to none, which explains why we're so smart, us millennials. What does Gen Z have? Dora the Explorer? I mean, well, well, you know, that's, that's pretty informative. Uh, well, anyways, but it lacks one thing. The Colossus of Duckopolis. All right, that's all for this episode. Thank you very much, and uh, bye-bye.